On the morning of May 14, 1999, Teresa reported her 10-year-old daughter Bridget missing to Westfield Police. Her last known whereabouts were with George Foster, who had been seen with her earlier in that evening. This is a case that is both simple and incredibly frustrating for the authorities that had to solve it. Even though it's now been over two decades since this case was first started, it's still an unbelievable case that goes to show how far someone is willing to save themselves, even though they are clearly guilty. This is the case of the disappearance of Bridget Wetzel. Hello, my beautiful friends. My name is Kim, and I hope you're having a fabulous day today. If you are interested in true crime like I am, but either way, thanks for being here. Bridget Wetzel was born on August 2nd, 1988. She was a cheerleader, but really wanted to be on the field playing football. She played softball, loved SeaWorld, and went every year with her family, a family that truly loved and cherished her little life. Her sister would tell me this in tears, remembering her sister. Her sister would also say that Bridget was deprived of being an aunt as her sister was pregnant at the time that Bridget's life was taken by darkness way too soon. Thanks to her sister, I was able to make this video today possible because there just wasn't a lot of info out there about this case. But what we do know is that Bridget had an immense love for animals. So when a family acquaintance, George Foster, asked Bridget if she wanted to go and see some baby raccoons, to no one's surprise, she said yes. Because Bridget was last seen with Foster, the police went over to his house to see if they could get some information from Foster, but he was not home, and so the fiancé answered the door and told them that when Foster got home that she would give them a call. At around 1 a.m., George's fiancé notified the police that he was at home and willing to speak to them at the police station. Upon arriving, Foster appeared to have scratches on his face and arms, which he claimed were from searching the woods for Bridget. At between 3 and 4.21 a.m. on May 14, 1999, George led the police to an area known as the Flats, where he had taken Bridget to look for some raccoons earlier in the evening. Unfortunately, no signs of her were found there, and Foster was asked to remain at his home Home, should the police have further questions for him. At around 6 a.m., George and his fiancée were observed walking near a baseball field despite being asked to stay home and indoors. The police walked them back along the banished trail and spotted a bicycle at the edge of the trail. Now, when they spotted this bike, they really thought that they were onto something. They really were hopeful that this was going to be the break that they needed. When asked to inspect it, Foster replied that it was not Bridget's bike. At around 9 a.m., George and his fiance were transported back home in a police cruiser. At about 9.30 a.m., Foster consented to have his residence search, but there was no signs of Bridget there as well. At around 11 a.m., Bridget's bike was discovered next to a cement factory in their town. Two and a half hours later, her body was found in a wooded area near the McDonald's Village 
Ohio. Trigger warning, she was not clothed. Only had one sneaker on. And her body appeared to be posed. Her legs were spread and her clothes had been discarded nearby. The way Bridget was found was indicative of the SA case. So the police took samples for DNA testing. While they had found Bridget, their work was just beginning. They had a long way to go before they could put her assailant behind bars. Even though they had the prime suspect within grasp. Providing Foster had something to do with Bridget's case was going to prove difficult. What's worse is that there is still the possibility that Foster had nothing to do with it at all. All they did know is that Bridget was killed mercilessly and they needed to find out what happened and who did it. The police wanted Foster to be brought in for questioning by 7 p.m. and began the interview. During breaks, they received further information from other people related to the case that Foster was wearing all black the day of the murder. A detail that sounds odd to mention, but there's a reason and we'll be talking about it. A chef from Bridget's school and a retired sales manager from the cement area where Bridget's body was found had both reported seeing her with a man. And guess what? all black. It was the first piece of information after the initial information that they'd gotten from Bridget's mother that connected Foster and Bridget together on the day she died and where her body was found. To make matters worse for Foster, one of the friends confirmed that the day before the murder, Foster mentioned he was actively searching for someone, young and good, he would say. Something you don't just say to people. So these details raised further suspicion towards Foster, who at first tried to stay silent throughout the questioning. But that wasn't enough for the police. Obviously, they needed more. In the interview with Foster, his story was found to have a lot of inconsistencies, and he was unable to deny with certainty that he had killed Bridget. This doubt combined with witness testimonies was enough to warrant a, an arrest for him. The situation was made even more serious by the fact that any inconsistencies in Foster's story could be deemed sufficient evidence of guilt. Furthermore, his claim that he had an alibi was not supported by any corroborating accounts, making it more difficult to prove that he was innocent. On top of that, the witness statement seemed to paint a convincing picture of Foster as the perpetrator, making his case even more precarious for him. The authorities concluded that they had enough to charge him. Even if things went to trial, the jury would see that Foster was guilty. The Trumbull County Courts officially charged and indicted George Foster for the heinous crimes of kidnapping and three counts of and aggravated murder in relation to the killing of Bridget Wetzel. The police arrested him and read him his Miranda rights. When in custody, he was asked about the murder of Bridget. He actually admitted to killing her. He finally broke and said that, yes, he had indeed done it. But he would stand by to the end that he had nothing to do with the essay of her, claiming that if that happened, 
someone else might have done it. He was only guilty of her murder, nothing else. While the police did get an, a confession enough to put him behind bars at this point, they still wanted a full confession. The 10-year-old girl wasn't just killed. She suffered a terrible fate at the hands of an adult she trusted. So a half confession wasn't going to cut it. They needed all of it. So instead of being taken directly to jail, he was sent to the Panther Street offices for further questioning, where he gave another statement and consented to a polygraph test. While polygraphs have questionable reliability on their own, and in most cases aren't even admissible in court, but the thing is, the police weren't trying to get evidence from the polygraph. They were trying to put more pressure on Foster so he'd crack and admit to the whole thing. That way, even if they can't use the polygraph in court, they can still use his confession. This is something that authorities do, and most of the time it works, especially with a suspect like Foster, who had already shown he could try to put a facade on, but then would break down shortly after. It was worth a shot, so they went for it. During the police interrogation, he was made aware of his rights and the consequences of confessing to a crime. He was informed that if convicted, he would face severe punishment. In addition, he was warned that any evidence gathered during questioning could be used against him in court. Despite these warnings, he still chose to confess to the crimes, even though he was the culprit, one who took away the right to live away from someone, he was being informed of his rights every step of the way. Now, maybe it was just the fact that he knew he was close to being caught or his guilt alone, but he kept waiving his rights every time they were read to him. The authorities just had to inform him about the consequences of things as the investigation was progressing. It's something that he was made well aware of, and during this time of the investigation, he chose to proceed and waived his rights every time. Foster was subjected to a polygraph test in which he admitted to being the one to also essay Bridget, including undressing her and positioning her body when she had how she had been found. He didn't elaborate on why he left her in the state that he did and why he didn't just go far enough to hide her body, but in a way, those details weren't even relevant anymore. I guess they were just curious of why he didn't try to hide her, but just kind of left her out and posed. In light of this confession, the police decided to record Foster's statement and apprise him of his legal rights another time. He was in a sound state of mind and okay to be to being recorded. During the subsequent videotape session, Foster was made aware of the fact that he had the right to remain silent and could have legal representation if desired. 
but he didn't want it. The recorded statement provided further evidence in the case, allowing police to build a stronger case against Foster for his alleged crimes. It was a clear-cut case of a man who knew what he had done, walked away from his victim without a care in the world, and decided that he didn't need a lawyer either. Three months later, in August of 1999, Foster hired an attorney and filed motions to suppress the evidence and videotapes on the grounds of unconstitutional arrest. Even though, as we've discussed before, Foster knew exactly what was going on throughout the case. His hiring a lawyer at this point was a feeble attempt to try to twist the legal system into letting him go, even though he was guilty. Despite his attempts to discredit the recordings made of him incriminating himself, the court denied each motion in secession until the case went to trial in January of 2000. After months of legal wrangling in February 2000, a jury unanimously found Foster guilty of the charges against him. This was obviously a devastating blow to Foster, who had consistently waived his rights to legal counsel prior to being presented with overwhelming evidence of his guilt. The decision of the court is one that I 100% agree with, and that is life in prison with no possibility of parole. This sentence was handed down after care full deliberation as it is one of the most serious punishments socially can impose on one an individual uh, for his actions but again well deserved this sentence isn't just handed to people it is reserved for those whose crimes are so egregious that whose character is so flawed that they cannot be trusted to ever again participate in society. Foster was clearly too far gone to ever be allowed to be free again. One 10-year-old had already paid the price. Why should other children be subjected to the same fate? Even though he knew what he had done and was found guilty of, he kept trying to figure out a way to get out of it. As with most criminals, he wasn't really thinking about the life he would have to spend behind bars if he was found guilty when he decided to take an innocent 10-year-old Bridget Wetzel's life. He was just thinking about himself. So once he landed behind those very bars, he wanted nothing more than to get out. Foster continued to try appeal after appeal to the court that the investigation was done in an unfair way, that there was key points within the investigation where he didn't know what was happening and he didn't know how things would progress, but the courts always upheld the original decision. The police had a valid legal justification for the arrest of Foster and at all stages Foster consented for all the procedures. On top of all that, it was determined that the waivers provided by Foster were given with a full understanding of their implications and that they were voluntary and made with intelligence. In other words, Foster was aware of his rights and chose to speak with the police officers despite 
this knowledge. For Foster, there is no getting out, and for Bridget, justice prevailed. Even though she is gone, at least her perpetrator will never be free to do this to anyone else like that of another child again. What is crazy is there are some Foster supporters out there. Don't ask me why. He has clearly admitted what he had done, but Bridget's grave site some time ago was vandalized, and this happened a couple of times. This has become a community place where people come and show their support and remember Bridget. So technically, it could have been anyone, but due to the family getting hate letters, it is easy to deduct that it could be foster supporters, which is really sad. And if you ask me, they all need Jesus badly. I've talked a lot about the clear dirtbag in this story, so I need to finish this with Foster took a beautiful life way too young. She did not get a chance to see her sunflowers bloom the second year after she planted them, but we will take solace that she was able to watch them grow proudly with a smile on her face that first year after she planted them. Today, let's remember that and celebrate Bridget's life. Bridget, you will never be forgotten. Just a sad case for all involved. Thanks to all my channel members and Patreons who continue to support me. Well, if you guys have made it to the end, you guys are rock stars and I love you to death. Stay safe, my loves. And remember, if you see something, say something. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.